You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. doing things a little bit differently today. Welcome back and welcome to Pollinator Week. Thank you for celebrating it with Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. And besides our regular guests, uh, we're also going to be answering some of the pollinator questions that we got from our Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast group. So if you're not a member, here's your incentive to go join because we're going to start doing this a little bit more often and, and asking members of that group four questions that they might want our guests to answer, that they may, might want us to answer. So if you're not a member, you're missing out. You you are miss, missing out. And also, uh, by no means at all am I a pollinator expert. I think I've I've said that on numerous episodes. So this this should be interesting. Our, our answers should be – I had to do a lot of research. I had to, <laughs> Me too. I had, I had, yeah. I had to trust a lot of other people. And it's also been a month uh, since we've done a podcast, so I, I almost felt, even while setting it up, like I've forgotten how to do it. And obviously I have because this is a second – for only the second time in all these episodes, this is a second take. So um, this is the point of the podcast where Tom and I typically do a little bit of uh, scripted catching up, uh, loosely scripted. But since Tom has become a father – uh, a Yay! Little, uh, yeah, a little over a week ago, we we honestly really haven't seen each other. Tom is actually you can probably tell just from listening. Tom is is doing this remotely today. I'm in the studio, which Tom, you're I, I got to say you're, you're actually lucky you're not in the studio because I took uh, Tuesday off and went to the beach and got sun poisoning on my feet. So oh. <laughs> I am shoeless in the studio right now, giving myself yeah. a, giving myself a break. Yeah. So yeah, my my feet are the size of like watermelons right now. Wow. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So you're you're lucky. Yeah. You're being spared yeah. from all this. It's perfect timing. So um, I, I guess you're lucky too, though, because I'm shoeless at home. So. <laughs> uh... We're we're both lucky. So we yeah. since we really haven't seen each other. We we really have no idea. I have no idea what you've been up to. So I'm curious how fatherhood's treating you. You are a new father, and I, how yeah. how are you and your wife doing? So far, so good. But first, I'm going to give you one correction, Fran. You All said right. this was our second time where we had to restart, but it's actually <laughs> our third because I think was it episode three, the social distancing episode, when you forgot to plug. The, the microphones back in and it, we it got is, like three quarters of the way through actually we were we were a half an hour in when i realized i didn't yeah. plug the mic actually as you were saying that i looked down <laughs> and i'm like did i plug the, the mics in but it, we're good we're plugged in so yeah we've gotten a lot better since then you know and it but. was really that and then with the pinelands nursery episode i completely flubbed the intro and i flubbed the intro today so it wasn't – at least we weren't a half an hour in and we had to recreate yeah. a half yeah. an hour worth of banter. So, But yeah. how's, how's it but, being a dad? How's, how's your new life as a father? It's going pretty good. At first I said, man, we have the perfect baby. He's just quiet all the time. Like maybe he lets out a little whimper when, he's, when he wants to eat or he needs to get changed. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I guess it was like three or four nights ago. It wasn't that way anymore. And it was – he just wanted to <laughs> – it wasn't even like he wanted – needed anything he just wanted to hang out he wanted to be held from like two o'clock to five o'clock in the morning 
and uh, I started getting a lot less sleep. But the last night or two has been a lot better. So it's um, I think I'm still in for some trouble you, <laughs> when you, it comes to sleep. But you, you know, the, but so far it's actually been pretty easy. The hard part is when you start stringing those nights together. Like that's where I found, you know, you can handle one bad night, maybe two bad nights, but when you have like five in a row and then you're, you're a little sleep deprived and you're trying to function normal Mm. and you know, you're not functioning normally. That's where it's, (laughs) that's when, that's when your patient starts to get tested a little bit, you know, so it's, you'll be fine. You're, you're doing good. I'm glad I, I am, I was thinking, you know, I was I was going to say it on the last episode, and I didn't. And I, I think I, I would like to pass along um, some advice that was given to me. So back when my first son was born, I was working at Princeton Nurseries, and at the time, I was probably traveling. Man, I was probably traveling three to four months a year on business, and I was over in the wholesale yard, and a salesman had come in, and it was someone I had worked with back in the late 80s. So we had known each other a long time. And even – you know, the funny thing was when we worked together, we didn't really get along, but we became friends after we didn't work together. So um, he had found out that um, I was going to be a father, and he's like, I would like to give you some advice. And what he said was when that – when your baby cries in the middle of the night, get up. Don't wait for your wife. Get up and hold that baby. He's like, my daughter is getting married, and I look back, and all I see are lost opportunities. I look at all the all the time I focused on work and all the travel and all the things I missed, and he's like, don't do it. Take every opportunity you have because you'll never know. So shortly after this, he actually passed away from brain cancer. He didn't know it at the time, and uh, man, it really hit hard. So I for, – for both of my children, I – took that to heart and even with work i missed darian's first steps i was in louisville kentucky and uh i just happened and that was back before facetime you know i (laughs) i think it was still like flip phones so you know just take you know when when you're worn down and you feel like you need a break just remember that i'd like to pass that on to you just remember that advice because before you know it like my kids are 20 and 17 you know it's and I don't always get to see them because they're out and they're they're starting to have their own lives. So take take advantage of it all. Let it all soak in while you have while you have the mm-hmm. opportunity. Yeah, and that's I I thought about that a little bit. Like you got to soak in every moment. And and I've actually been doing that. I've been the one waking up in the middle of the night, really just to give my wife a break because she's helping the baby all day. And uh, it's the least I can do to kind of wake up at like two o'clock and five o'clock to kind of calm him back down and change him if he needs it. And, but um, it is something like it's amazing how quickly you forget about every single thing that happened before. It's like really he was born on June 12th and it's like I didn't have a life before June 12th. Everything's happened and it feels like it's been forever even though it's been less than two weeks. Yeah, but uh, you know, it's like it completely changes and you don't care about anything else except except the baby and uh you know and it and then it transforms again where it seems like it was so long ago like thinking back to holding my children as babies seems like centuries ago you know and it's so it it flips really really fast so sometimes it's really hard like to to enjoy that moment because there's so many things going on so it's just one of those things i always think about his advice whenever i'm like feeling a little flustered or or a lot of things going on you know just take a step back enjoy the Mm -hmm. moment that you know that moment's going to be gone and you're never going to get it back so that's 
That's yeah, and it's, it's interesting too because I'm I've been working basically working mostly from home. I have a, a nice luxury that I live uh, basically, basically on the nursery. On the nursery. Yeah. So I'm working. I'm basically just made my office in my living room, and then if I need to go check something in the in one of the fields and need to look at some plants, or I need to go talk to someone, I can just kind of walk over, or if I'm feeling lazy, I'll drive over and <laughs> and uh, do what I need to do. Stand at the front. Uh, front counter in the office and, and chat there. And, um, but that was, I was surprised that the doctors were really so strict with everything going on. I assume there'd be some changes. You don't want to let certain people hold the baby, but they really encouraged us to, to self quarantine for 14 days after or before the baby was born. And then really wanted us to do it. If we had the opportunity to for as long as we could after, but, uh, I don't know how long I'll be able to do it, but even, no, I guess what I was going to get to is it's, um, even though I'm only working in the living room, half an hour goes by or an hour goes by. And I'm like, man, I really missed, <laughs> missed my son and I missed my wife. I'm, I need to go check on him and I'll take a walk and go upstairs to the bedroom or go to his bedroom or wherever they are and, and just hang out for 10, 15 minutes and then say, all right, I got to go back to work. But it, it's, um, I'm going to miss that interaction when I do go back in the office. It, uh, it's a it's a nice luxury, and you will you'll you'll find yourself for as crazy as it can get. As soon as it's not there, you'll miss it. So mm-hmm. it's not really my advice; it's Tom's advice that I'm I'm passing along. But I'm I'm proud to be able to pass that along for him. So that, that but it's really, good advice, and I'm I'm really lucky to have such great role models. Not just with my parents, but a lot of people in our office, including you, Fran. Oh, even. thank you, thank you. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> Who, on how to race. Listen, I have if, some good role models on how to race kids. If anyone, I I guarantee you, you could talk to anyone that I went to high school with, or any of my friends from twenty twenty five years ago. If 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 you would have said, ask them, then you know, is Fran going to be a role mo- good role model as a father? No one would have. <laughs> no one would have agreed with that comment. It would have been a complete shock. To every, it would have been like no. So it's 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 just crazy how fatherhood changes you uh, in such a positive way if you embrace it. So it's best thing that that in my life that's happened to me are those two kids. Yeah. But so anyway, like I was just saying, I've been working from home. I see you sporadically um, throughout the last month or so, but uh, I haven't looked at our our podcast stats at all. I know. I get the emails every once in a while about if we went up or down, but I don't. I haven't even really had the time to look at them. So how are we doing? We're, you know what, we're we're doing really well, and it's it's a little overwhelming when I look at the stats and see every time we release a new episode how how many listens and how quickly those listens come. Our last episode, um, man, the the first day listens were were unreal and completely were very humbling. So we've now been listened to in forty six states. Um, and 26 countries as well as being a top 15 podcast in Norway so Tusen Tak which is thank you in Norwegian I did a little research there um, and if any of our listeners have friends in Kansas Wyoming Utah or Hawaii kindly make them listen to an episode so we can say all 50 states I'm tired of being in the 40s <laughs> yeah, yeah. and with the with the different countries I didn't know this until I was working from home but there's uh, a thing called a VPN, which is like a virtual private network. Mm-hmm. And you can basically make it look like you're anywhere in the world. And I'm wondering how many of these people are actually listening from Norway? How many of them are just in the United States and using one of these VPN programs to, to direct them? And I, I've started using them for the security just so people can't 
I'm accessing my desktop at work from home so people can't can't get in. But um, That's so what I decided is I'm going to start checking off some of these other countries, and I think I'm going to start with Croatia. So anyone else who's who's listening and is using a VPN, go select Croatia as your as your VPN country. And then we'll become a top 10 <laughs> podcast in Croatia. We're going to rule the Croatian we'll, we'll podcast chart. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to slowly, pot, episode by episode, take the world by storm via VPN. Yep. You know, and you're probably right. That kind of like like crushes my <laughs> – my my happiness on you know thinking wow look at look at how popular we're becoming we're being listened to all over the world and you're right it's probably it's probably someone in Virginia West Virginia listening just but that's probably even better it's someone who's getting information that's really pertinent to them where someone who is in Ireland doesn't make as much of an impact on them but. no it it doesn't and you know it's it's nice to see when you look that. You know, being that we're based in New Jersey, New Jersey's only forty percent of our overall listens. That makes mm-hmm. me happy. You know that the Northeast is where the bulk of our listens come to. But once you get past like New Jersey, New York, PA, Virginia, and Maryland, it's California, it's Indiana, it's Illinois. Like with with big listens, so it's it's nice to see that what we're talking about isn't just relevant here to the Northeast. That it's it's. It's making sense to people across the country, you know, because it's really the message. It's not just northeast yeah. natives; it's, yeah. it's being natives and and what it does for the environment. So, it's and it, we're trying to provide a mix of uh, of guests. That some of them are super regional. We're, we even have some lined up that are really down to individual communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are countywide, statewide. Some of them are more regional to like the Mid Atlantic or Northeast or. Uh, and then we have some national programs like Monica and the Rough and Xerxes side. They're national programs. We just happen to talk to some people that are are local, but they spread all over the country. And even some of these tinier programs, some of the, the more local stuff. While if you're listening in California, oh, something about that's going on in New Jersey, it might not be relevant to you. But there's probably an organization like that right in your backyard that you can become part of. Um, and that's our and that's kind yeah. of. Yeah, that kind of segues even into our next guest. Uh, we talked <laughs> probably too much today. We did. But, um, we did. That's what happens when we don't see each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, with our next guest, it's an organization I really don't know a ton about, but it's an area of New Jersey that I consider one of my favorites. Um, I agree. And an area that I don't spend enough time in, but every time I'm there, I'm like, oh, man, I really love it here. And uh, – so, Carolyn, I'm actually going to let you introduce the Sourland Conservancy and, and yourself. So, why don't you go ahead? So, my name is Carolyn Klaubov. I am the Stewardship Program Coordinator for the Sourland Conservancy. So, the Sourlands is kind of like a hidden gem of New Jersey. And we classify the Sourland region by geology, namely by the diabase rock that is the foundation of this area. So this Ireland Mountain region is a 90-square-mile um, area in central New Jersey, and it's also the largest contiguous forest in central New Jersey. The Ireland region is home to a diverse number of plant and animal species, and we have over 350 state-endangered plant species, as well as quite a few uh, animal species, such as the bobcat, migratory wow. birds. Yeah. I didn't really know that. really cool here. Mm-hmm. Uh, migratory birds use the Sirelands as a place to rest and eat during their migration, as well as some even stay to breed, such as the scarlet tanager, uh, who needs really deep forest to raise their young. 
The Sutherland Mountain region also provides headwaters that flow into the Raritan and Delaware rivers and provide clean water to millions of people. Um, this region is also really rich in cultural history, just like the forest. Uh, the Lenape Indians first settled in this region about 10,000 years ago. Um, and in the 1600s, Dutch farmers arrived here. Um, they also brought the region's uh, first black slaves. Um, after that, the British came, and then in the 19th century, uh, industry that was here was mostly lumber and quarries and agriculture. Um, and this region started to become kind of infamous for uh, artists and bootleggers. <laughs> um, and Charles Lindbergh kind of made this place really famous for a short while uh, when the, the Lindbergh uh, kidnapping happened. That was yes. right here in the Sourland. I did not know that. So, yep, right here. Uh, so if you come to this region now, it's really, really spectacular. There's 26 trails open to the public, and there's a little bit for everybody. So if you want to go bouldering or mountain biking, kayaking, um, there's places for that. There's really steep, hill, rocky trails to hike up, and there's beautiful flush meadows. There's handicap accessible trails um, and incredible vistas that look over on the Delaware River. Um, you can also learn more about the African-American history of this region by checking out the Stoutsburg Sutherland African-American Museum, which we worked we work with closely um, to share stories of people who are often left out of the history books. You know, one one of the things about that area, I and I grew up in, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Um, driving through that area as a kid, it's you visibly it's it's striking visibly as soon as you enter it. And it's not uh, to me, I don't think it's what most people think of when they think of New Jersey. Um, right. If you're not from that area, obviously, if you're from that area, it's it's what you know. But to me, that's like those forests aren't what I expect to see in New Jersey. Like I expect that more like in in upstate or western PA, not there. So, you know, a lot of people think of the beaches or South Jersey farmland and or, you know, the water gap area or just congestion. But that. Or, yeah, or Newark, friends. Yeah, or Newark, Newark in the airport. Right, yeah. <laughs> Anything along the turnpike. Yes. You know, yeah. That's New Jersey. Exactly. So it's they don't think of that. But when you're there, it's almost as if you're not in New Jersey to me. It's yeah. it's 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 a whole nother world. And that's you know, and and for an area with with such rich history, it's great that there are keepers of that land because we all know, especially in New Jersey, land can go pretty quickly <laughs> right it definitely does and you know i think that it's so it's so easy to get lost here in a nice way of getting lost because each part of the ridge along the the Sarland mountain is different there's different plant communities there's kind of a different feel of the forest you know it's only 90 square miles i mean it's it's a big area but it's not a huge area but you can you can feel the difference depending on where you are on the mountain. And, um, you, you know, it's. I, I'm always amazed. I never see that many people out there. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, and it, this this happens every episode. We we pre-write questions out, and as soon as we start talking, I'm completely coming up with with different questions. So that area to me is so beautiful, and with land at a premium, especially in those areas. It, it has to, or it, the road to keep that 
preserved has had to have been a, a hard road because you would think, oh, this is a beautiful area. I want to live here. And then houses start popping up and it becomes more populated. How – what are some of the challenges? Like how difficult was it to 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 help that land and preserve that land? So a lot of the work done here is community-based and nonprofit-based. Okay. So – um, the Sutherland Conservancy, until last year, we did not actually own any land. So we oh, okay. work with um, other nonprofit organizations and municipalities to protect land. So, you know, we often work with DNR Greenway, Friends of Hopewell Valley Open Space, Mercer County Park Commission, um, the all great preservation. All, yeah, all great uh, uh, institutions, too. Yep. You're mentioning and land trusts. All of these organizations we work with, um, and so they're the ones, you know, going through the legal process of purchasing and preserving the land, the Green, you know, Green Acres Fund, everything like that. They work with that, and then we come in and we try to help, you know, whether it's stewarding the land, so whether it's helping them remove invasive species or, you know, working together for educational programs or restoration projects. So that's where we, as an organization, are really, really strong at promoting and, you know, collaborating with other organizations to purchase land, and then we can help them. Well, how how did the Sourland Conservancy come about? Um, what what's we we know a little bit of the history of the Sourlands, but how did the Conservancy come about to become uh, what we're talking about today? So the Sarland Conservancy was started in 1986, and Robert Garrett was the founder of the organization. And basically, it was a kitchen table organization where residents—it was a handful of residents—got together, and they were really worried about the development that was encroaching on this region. They recognized the importance, you know, ecologically of this of this region, and and why we needed to protect it. So that's how it started was, you know, residents getting together saying we need to do something and we need to stop this unnecessary development. We need to protect the land here. And it led to our mission, with, which is protect, preserve and promote the Sourland Mountain region. So it's as old as this organization is as old as I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they've been working tirelessly for coming up 34 years. And that's still, as far as organizations go, that's still in its infancy. I think you've accomplished a lot in starting at a kitchen table um, to uh, where you're at uh, now. Absolutely. And and we've only actually had, I think, paid staff for seven years. Wow. So, I didn't realize that. You know, yep, it's been volunteer-driven for years. And, and even now, there's only four of us. There's one full-time staff member. Um, our executive director, Lori Cleveland, and then there's three part-timers, which me, uh, there's Maya Robles, our administrative assistant, and Karina Ran, our communications coordinator, and the other part-time. And I think that for as tiny as our organization is, we get a lot done. You know, when when I think of the Sourlands Conservancy and the work that you do, I would have never have guessed that was the size of your staff. I, I really would not have. I would have guessed it was much larger than that because I think your reach is, is really well um, and and known. So I'm, I, I love hearing, you know, 
and this goes back to when we talked to Kelly Gill from Xerxes, that that was a um, a butterfly club that evolved to what it is. For for all of our listeners out there that that are wondering how they can make a difference or what they can do, around a kitchen table is now the Sourland Conservancy. <laughs> like it's uh, all these or a butterfly club is now the Xerxes Society. It's you can make a difference. You you really can make a choice, and that, I think you're a great example of that. Uh, the Sourland Conservancy. Yeah, I think, you know, a really important message I think people should take home is that, like you said, you can make a difference. You can have a positive impact on your environment and in your community. You know, you just have to work together. You have to work hard, but you can work together and you can accomplish a lot when you, you know, put your hands and your heads together. Except not during quarantine. Don't put your hands anywhere. But, you know, there's only four of you. There's only so much work that four people can do, especially if three of you are only part-time. So the more people you get involved on a volunteer basis, the more they become stewards of the land on their own. And hopefully they share and they bring more people in and and that organization grows. Um, How do you – how do you get people involved with the Sourland Conservancy? What are some of the the efforts or reaches that you do to get – volunteers so we have a bunch of different programs so our mission is protect promote and preserve the Sourland mountain region and so we do that through a couple of different categories we do that through stewardship we do it through education and we do it through advocacy so in our stewardship program we have a couple different ways that we work with volunteers so one is steward shops okay. where a member of the Sourland conservancy invites somebody from their stewardship committee which is a volunteer on our committee, or, or it's me, comes out to their house and we look around and they talk about some issues they're having with their land or they want to create some sort of habitat for, for birds or butterflies. And then we invite the public to come uh, to this person's land and walk through it together and we develop a, a plan for them. Okay. And it's, it's a very open community conversation about ecology and um, ecological services that can be provided, whether it's managing soil erosion or if it's managed or, you know, creating a butterfly garden or whatever. But we really like to pull people in from the community and have this conversation where it's not just somebody necessarily on their soapbox, you know, shouting about you need to do this, you need to do that, but opening the conversation. and, And some people learn better hands on. You know, better than sitting at a computer and and going through a list of things where they actually have the opportunity to walk a property and and talk with an expert and learn firsthand, which I think in some cases sticks a lot better than what you read. Yeah, and community knowledge that just because somebody went to college for something doesn't necessarily know that means that they know everything. That there's people that are really, really in tune in the land, especially that have grown up here. They know what works here. You know, and I want, and we want to hear what they have to say. So that's one of our ways is steward shops. We also engage volunteers through plantings. Last year, we did a Roots for Rivers restoration project where we had over 200 people come out and get trees in the ground. Um, we do pollinator pocket plantings with Hopewell Elementary School. Um, we have a great stream monitoring program that we do with the Watershed Institute and NJDEP. And we have a whole group of different types of volunteers that come out for that because some people are really into aquatic, benthic, macroinvertebrates. Some people are really into plants. And so it's funny that those two groups of volunteers really don't mix too much, but I love both of them. Both groups are awesome. 
Um, we get volunteers in with our education. We have experts come and give guided hikes about plant ID, birding, um, archaeology, and mushrooms, like all different things that are here in the Sourlands that are really exciting. And we also have a seminar series in the fall where experts will come in and give a seminar on carbon sequestration in Sourland Forest or about lichens, um, African-American history in this area. There's just a really, I guess, community-based education is kind of how I want to say it because it's everybody that are giving these talks are people that live around here. Um, and then our advocacy is another way that we have volunteers engage where we're fighting unnecessary and dangerous development like the Penny's Pipeline. Okay. Um, and, you know, helping to find out if somebody else is going to cut down a bunch of forests to build a tennis court. And so we'll go and try to fight against that. So, and almost all of that is volunteer run. So the staff, you know, helps with logistics and, you know, organizing things. But I mean, if we didn't have the volunteer base that we have, I mean, we couldn't get done half the, you know, a quarter of the things that we do now because our volunteers are so enthusiastic and so passionate that it really just drives our organization forward. And and you need that because when you're dealing with nature, it's it's broad topics, but we all tend to have our narrow specialty. So, you know, I'm by no means an expert on anything, but my <laughs> what I could speak intelligently about is a very narrow subject um and you need you know like i'm not strong on pollinators i'm not strong on a lot of other things but if you have that network of all of those people there to create one that's one heck of a network <laughs> that that's you know whatever you need for uh that ecosystem if you have someone there that that can help with that and teach others that's that's a pretty valuable uh yeah it, tool it is really amazing and you know People will call us up and say, you know, I just saw this crazy bird. I took a picture. Can you help me figure out what it is? And, you know, we know a whole list of volunteers that work with us that are, you know, great ornithologists. And we just send them over that way. They have some other, you know, amphibian question, you know, where they found yellow spotted salamanders in their septic like, pipe. And <laughs> <laughs> they're asking what to do. And I'm like, well. I don't know, but I know who does know. So I'm going to, you know, connect, you know, and so I think that's, again, what we're really good at is connecting people, you know, and filling in where, you know, help needs to happen. And, and you feel good when you're able to help, when you, when, when you know something that can help or solve someone else's problem. That's a good feeling, and it makes you want to get involved and be involved, and that's awesome. Um, before I forget, you did mention the Roots for Rivers program, which – I'm sad that that's almost over because that's been such a great program I know. for the last few years. Now, I'm, I'm very excited we're going to have in soon. We're kind of waiting till restrictions ease up a little bit, but Michelle de Blasio from the Nature Conservancy is going to come in and, and talk a little bit oh, about wonderful. what that program did. And so I don't want to ruin it, but I just – I'm happy that you brought that up because that was such a great program. But a, a lot of the programs that you mentioned were, were great. So I have – Michelle is fabulous. I – loved working with her um she's so knowledgeable and so helpful and i i think that's basically my feeling about almost all the other organizations that i work with everybody has been just 
so phenomenal. Um, she is, and she's year. and she's happy too, and I like that. Yes, she is. <laughs> yes, she is. Um, so last year we worked with we partnered with Mercer County Park Commission to do a Roots for Rivers planting on Morris Creek, and we planted eighteen hundred trees. Wow. Um, and you know, a lot of what we're doing is not just planting trees, but talking to people about why you want to do a riparian restoration. What happens mm. when a riparian zones that that area between, you know, the edge of the of the river or stream? What important things happen in there? And so we're talking about water purification and the water, so the water temperature is cooler and more oxygen in there, and having a bigger conversation about ecosystem services and ecosystem function. And you know, you might pull them in for broken plant a tree, but then they leave with a lot more information than, you know, I put three trees in the ground. Yeah. And I think that's, and, and that, you know. I was just saying that education is so important because a lot of times, especially if you're a homeowner and you're butt up to a creek or a river like that, you just want to have lawn right down to the river so you can enjoy it. but. Then that ground starts to erode, and then they wonder why there's erosion. They bring in rocks, so they bring in concrete to put in the bulkhead, and it's kind of like a cascade of, of different interventions, um, of a lot of times negative interventions, and then just having the lawn all the way down, or anything, uh, pet waste, fertilizer, herbicides you're putting down that lawn is now going into the water. Um, so just the education on its, on its own is so important because it's something that's overall missed in today's culture and it's it's it really is creating a paradigm shift because no one wants to be preached at on what to do but they right. do want to be educated on why maybe what they're doing is wrong so without mm -hmm. telling them what they're doing is wrong showing them uh hey you know if you create a bulkhead the energy you're creating is is destroying the stream further downstream and it's a problem that can't be fixed and and things like that like people just don't understand that their their thinking isn't out there but when you provide that kind of education via community that's there being helpful i mean that's that's really just creating a whole community <laughs> you know it's 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 knowledge and communication that wouldn't exist otherwise and that's not easy to just replicate that takes that's got to trickle down from leadership and employees and and follow through with everyone else. So the fact that you have that in such a short amount of time just really is amazing to me. Yeah, I you know, I I really think that people want to do well by the environment. You know, they want to do good things and they want to support pollinators so they want to plant a butterfly bush. You know, and then trying to change the conversation of I, I see what you're trying to do, but let's talk about it. You know, the, the butterfly bush, it does provide nectar for that butterfly, but what are the caterpillars? Like yeah. where are the caterpillars mm -hmm. going? And so kind of bring that conversation of, you know, there's a life cycle here. And so mm -hmm. what can we do to, pro to provide for that that butterfly's entire life? You know, so we might need some grasses because they need structure to pupate on and, and going through that whole life cycle of the food source and and the structure and then the nectar and then they're like oh like you know just bring that connection to get them it like you said that paradigm shift of you know you just see a bird at one stage or you just see a butterfly at one life cycle one stage of its life cycle but you have to think about the entire life cycle that you have to provide caterpillars 
for that bird to survive and feed its young. You know, if you want to keep seeing those birds, if you want to keep seeing those butterflies. So and, and let's work together by example. And, and that's when all the changes happen. That's when different birds mm-hmm. are coming in. That's when – and listen, I, I understand it's tough where I live – you know, you want to do all the right things, and when you have the raccoons going through your trash every night, and the <laughs> the chipmunks right. going under your pavers, uh, you know, it 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 becomes, you know, it it it's frustrating. But at least you know you're doing it. You attracted, you're creating an ecosystem, and you're doing the right thing. And there's a way to to fix all those things and make it all. Uh, all better and it's easier to become one with that like you feel a part of it when you've made that change you're not just mm-hmm. witnessing it or viewing it out a window you're you're actual a living part of it well and i think that's the biggest shift of all is realizing that it's not our house yes. our lawn and land for it we are part of the sourland mountain ecosystem we are part of this forest and the decisions that we make on our land have an impact on the ecosystem and we can make choices that are going to really benefit our local ecosystem and we can have choices that negatively impact the ecosystem so let's talk about it you know and find something that works for everybody i agree i agree that that reminds me of a of a quote that um there's a fellow from wisconsin doug Barron, who's like a, a farmer um he actually used to be uh own a restoration contract out here as well. But he has a quote he always likes to say that it's not ours, it's not excuse me, it's not ours, our turn. And uh, you kind of just put that uh, through in your own wording. Um, it's, it's not just our house or our lawn or our property, it's just our turn to kind of take care of that, uh, especially in the Sourlands. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. and it's and it's a perfect time for that to have happened. Like, could you imagine if if your organization had happened ten years later, what the area that you looked like would be dealing with? Um, it might be completely yeah. different. Yeah, because it's escalated. I mean, uh, progress has escalated quickly recently. So I think uh, it happened at at an incredible time, uh, and the impact that you're doing is phenomenal. So speaking of thinking of impact so one of the things that's impressed me about sourland conservancy so this year has been such a challenging year with COVID 19 um and it affected so many great organizations who do work in the spring through volunteer work and a lot of that went away uh especially here in new jersey so um this is a two-part question for you how did COVID 19 restrictions affect the conservancy but also one of the the way you handle your volunteer events or what would be like your your sale or planting event i thought was completely unique in how you got people involved and trees in their hand and trees planted and i was hoping that you could talk about that a little bit also sure so uh the covid19 restrictions um were definitely a challenge but first i need to give a shout out to uh brendan elliott of technique because okay. in December, he came to the Sireland Conservancy as a volunteer to help us get up-to-date technology guides. Oh, so very nice. He brought us onto the G Suite, so using Gmail and Google Spreadsheets and all that wonderful stuff, and Slack and Trello to manage our projects. 
Um, and spent a lot of time in here with us, <laughs> helping us migrate all of our information and teaching us how to use these um, electronic tools. So when COVID-19 happened, we were able to seamlessly work from home. Awesome. Like everything had already just been put up online and Lori Cleveland, our executive director, had actually closed our office two weeks before lockdown. Wow. She was like, you know, I don't feel like it's safe for us to be in the office. Let's all work from home. And so because of what Brandon did with Technique uh, in December really set us up to work really easily and efficiently from home. So, um, which was perfect timing. Yeah, it was unbelievable timing. timing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There seems to be a lot of things that are perfect timing for the Sutherland Conservancy. (laughs) So, um, as far as, you know, how we pivoted with our volunteers. So every, almost everything that we do is volunteer based. Okay. And in person. So all of our educational programs are in person and our volunteer programs are in person. So the first thing we did as far as education and stewardship is that we moved our steward shops online. Okay. So we did Facebook live events of steward shops. So people would submit their questions to me and then I would try to answer them online and do a a workshop explaining the ecological concepts for the background information as to why I'm making these recommendations. So again, it's a whole process it's not just don't plant butterfly weed it's this is why you don't want to do that um and then we moved on with our act campaign and act stands for ash crisis team so back in the fall during one of our train sets train oh my goodness train (laughs) seminar series uh little zipsy from new jersey forestry Mm -hmm. service came out and gave a talk to us about the state of our forest in the Sutherland Mountain region. And we found out that we are a powerhouse of carbon sequestration. Okay. It's pretty much New Jersey Highlands, the Pinelands, and us. And we're way tinier, but we're doing almost just as much work. We're doing a really great job carbon sequestering carbon here. Wow. And then we found out that uh, the Emerald Ash, we knew the Emerald Ash borer was coming or had came, but we didn't realize how devastating it was going to be until uh, Will Zipsy gave that talk and told us that over 1 million ash trees are going to die in the next three to five years. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was in Michigan right when the emerald ash borer uh, outbreak happened, like within months. And, mm. you know, and it's primarily a lot of ash forests and to just see the midsummer defoliated and dead was like one of the most traumatizing things to me. And this was a, a community where you can't just put a new forest in, <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's not that easy, you know, and I know they did everything they could to try to sequester that there and keep that there, but, but it's here and it's, there's, there's not too many places in New Jersey where it's, it's a primarily an ash forest, but the Sourlands has a fair amount of ash. Yeah. So in parts of the Sourlands, ash trees make about 20% of the canopy and other parts, 70%. Wow. So that's, you know, seven out of 10 trees are going to die in the next few years. I mean, that's catastrophic. That That is. is catastrophic. And so that happens. Uh, around, we found that out in about November. 
Okay. And then, you know, started kind of thinking about what, what we're going to do. And we started looking around to maybe do some really big tree plantings this spring. Try to get trees in the ground. Now, so as the canopy dies, there's native trees there to start taking their place. Okay. Um, and that's a big on taking. I mean, that's a lot of yeah. a lot of canopy to replace. A lot of canopy, but you had to do something. Yes. You know. <laughs> so <laughs> COVID nineteen happens, and then all of that volunteer power disappeared because. We couldn't get people together, so we couldn't do these big plantings where we would plant 1,800 trees. Yeah. So, you know, we really started putting our heads together, together thinking about what can we do, what can we do, and we put out on the internet, at, I think Volunteer Match or something like that, asking for people to help us, and we got volunteers from Washington State, Wyoming, Florida, um, need to California too saying yes we're going to help you come up with a wow so they really just knocked it out of the park um, we figured out how much it would cost for us to um, buy tree, uh, deer fencing because okay. in this area there's a lot of deer pressure we, we you... have between 10 pardon uh, no I'm sorry go ahead we have between 10 to 12 times the amount of deer that can be sustained uh, in this forest. So and that's, that's about – That changes the so, forest too. I mean that's – It does. It does. It, it has a huge impact. So there used to be – historically it was about 10 deer per square mile. And right now we have 100 to 120 deer per square wow. mile. Wow. Um, so there's a lot of parts of this Ireland that there's no understory. And the only understory that is there are invasive uh, plants that are not being eaten by white-tailed deer because white-tailed deer are native, so they have a preference for native plants. Yes. So, you know, when there's only 10 deer per square mile, the forest can regenerate. But when there's 100 to 120 deer per square mile, the forest cannot self-regenerate. So we knew that we'd have to provide these plants with protection from deer herbivory so everybody working together all these volunteers from across the country and our staff and our regular core volunteers electronically zoom meetings <laughs> google <Yeah>. hangouts <laughs> you know working together trying to come up with a plan and our plan became act which is the ash crisis team and so we reached out to local uh and we got a discount or bought fencing at wholesale price. We worked with Pinelands Nursery um, to be able to provide plants at a reasonable price to the public and um, came up with handouts and literature all about what's going on and the big driver behind it was you can make a difference in your local ecosystem by planting trees on your property. So instead of going to a preserve or preserve land and planting plants, we pivoted and said, let's do it on private property because everybody is quarantining at home. We can't get groups together, but you can plant a tree in your yard. And people got really excited about that. They're like, yeah, I, I would love to. I would love to do something positive. And so we had lots of people buy one tree. We had lots of people buy 20 trees. And... Um, 
it was it was it was a big success if i remember correctly it Mm -hmm. was it was a a really really great success they're super excited about it um so you know right now is a really hard time for a lot of people uh emotionally because of all the psychological stress that's going on um and feeling helpless and also financially because a lot of people are losing their jobs so we wanted to make sure that um wouldn't impede people from being able to plant trees just because they couldn't afford to buy a tree kit. So we also gave the option for people to donate tree kits. And then so there was lots of people that signed up for a free tree kit because they couldn't afford to buy one. And we just didn't want that to be a barrier getting trees in the ground. So uh, we did three pickups for our ACT campaign uh, where people bought the trees ahead of time. They came to our parking lot. We decided and we walked out who could pick up at what spot at what time each parking lot spot was its own pickup people could drive up and pick up their trees load them in their cars and uh, take them put them in the ground and with our three pickups we got about 600 trees wow. uh, planted on wow. the property yeah that's amazing and, that's amazing and then yeah. you have built-in stewards right there and, right mm-hmm. we also not only provided the trees and the deer protection, we also gave them uh, informational videos of how to plant it correctly, how to take care of it, um, you know, what type of habitat these different trees need, all different types of questions. So it's not just a one-off, here's a tree, stick it in the ground. We want to make sure that they understand the positive impact that they're having on their local ecosystem and draw them in with the slow creep of, reducing your yard, <laughs> reducing your lawn, plant more trees, plant native. Um, because like I said before, you can make a positive impact on your ecosystem, on your community. And I think it really brought people together, socially distant, <laughs> good about what they were doing, you know, for their forest. You know, it, it's when, when Lori told me about this program, I, I felt it was such a great program just from the fact that Thinking outside the box in a time frame to have to do something different quickly and how well it worked out. I, I think the one thing we're learning from what we've had to do to navigate through these times are how many other – we were forced to come up with alternate ways to do things. And it's such a right. great idea. That even when it's not during these times, it's still a program that could work and be successful, um, which is fantastic. And it's right. – you, part of the reason we wanted you on here was so that other organizations could hear about this to see what they can do even you know, because there were places unfortunately that had to cancel volunteer plantings and and they they didn't know how to take that next step and here's right. this inc- well, we, incredible program that was born out of taking that next step great and we uh, uh, as an organization are very tenacious we had to cancel some of our plantings too um, one of which was a pollinator planting uh, with Hopewell Elementary School. And we were supposed to do that in April, and we could not let it go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, we are doing this. So we changed. Originally, we were going to have the whole Hopewell Elementary School out. We were going to do a stewardship blitz with Mercer County Park Commission, go in and teach all the kids about uh, stewardship and pollinators and all that fun stuff and have them come out and plant. And then that had to stop, but we decided that we need to still do this. We can't let it go. So we had the, we invited the entire 
graduating fifth grade class of Hopewell Elementary School to come out and plant to have a little graduation. Okay. And so each family could sign up for a time slot. So we had it in 30 minute time slots that families could come and there'd be one volunteer at our foraging forest, which is where they were going to be planting these pollinator plants. And so the families would come with their masks and their gloves and the volunteer that was there would give them a whole spiel about the foraging forest and native plant restorations and pollinators and what pollinators need and who are pollinators. They're not just bees. Um, and allow the family to be there and, you know, get some native plants in the ground and get outside together and do something. And then they would leave, we would sanitize everything. And then the next family group would come. And it worked out really well. And we got 400 plants in the ground this past week. Wow. Wow. That's, that's phenomenal. And you got all those families involved and, and hopefully future stewards of the land, uh, being a part of that i that is a wonderful story i didn't even know that was happening yeah yeah i mean and the families are really happy to come out and do it not every family came out but a lot of them came out and they were so thrilled you know to be together and to feel like they were doing something positive and learning a little bit you know got to quiz those fifth graders on (laughs) you know (laughs) what what is metamorphosis you know Mm. and, and it was really fun. I really enjoyed it, and the volunteers that helped out said that they really enjoyed it. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to do things. It's not always, you know, A to Z. You know, there's a lot of other letters in between. So, you know, you just got to find your way to get there. Oh, I bet those fifth graders had a lot of really good answers. Oh, they did. They did. So besides all of these great programs, I, I found it very interesting some of the other things that you do during normal uh, times and as a music fan, I was really excited to hear about the Sourlands Music Festival, which I think is a great. What that is something that I've actually talked to Tom about, saying, "Man, I would love to like create some kind of music festival around nature," and here's someone yeah. close by that's already doing it. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about about that? Sure. So, uh, this year was supposed to be our seventeenth annual really music fest mountain fest we changed our name last year it's the mountain fest now um so it started out really small and i'm pretty sure our first one was held at hillbilly hall (laughs) 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 and uh you know it seemed great to become kind of a staple of the sarlin mountain region so it's uh local musicians not just of the sarlin region but out you know into silly too okay um come and perform and it's a seven hour long festival um there's local vendors it's you know sponsored by local businesses and all the proceeds go to the Sarland conservancy um and it's just it's so much fun i've only i only went for the last two years i unfortunately didn't know about it before then um but the great music great food lots of fun and games for the whole family so i'm really hoping that next year we can pick up again and do it mm-hmm. but uh i mean no i, I we also I'll, I'll in between look. sets we'd have like uh people give talks about this region so it was really fun so i i've heard a little birdie told me that you're a musician uh, any plans of <laughs> you performing at the the music uh, the mountain fest well i'm not performing at the mountain fest i'm 
playing at Hopewell Valley Vineyards on July 12th. All right. Uh, but I play guitar. I've been playing guitar since I was about 10. Uh, but a lot of the uh, the musicians that you are at the Mountain Fest are uh, original song artists. And I like to do covers because I'm way too cheesy to write my own music. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I like playing people's stuff um all right tom we're, we're gonna have to make a road trip to get <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. play. Yeah. <laughs> so we we've we've talked a, and 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 we're just starting to t- touch on a little bit we talked a lot about the the history of the sour lands and the history of the sour land conservancy what kind of path led you i always find it interesting how people end up being where they are and having it be such a great fit how, what was the the path that led you to the sour land conservancy so, um, growing up, my dad was a scientist. He worked for Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory as an oceanographer. So okay. I kind of grew up a little bit in the lab. And then my mom used to take me to the Lorimer Sanctuary, which is run by the Audubon Society. So okay. I really got involved in science and nature when I was little. Um, and when I went to college, I kind of floundered around, didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself, which is I that's think, normal. Most that's normal <laughs> college experience. <laughs> Um, until I took a dendrology class and I laser beamed in like it was I I couldn't imagine that life was this cool you know I just loved it and um, I just started working in different labs in forestry so started out in a Dr. Jacobski's urban forestry lab and I was measuring the wingspan of populifolia <laughs> to see how uh, heavy metals affected sea dispersal. And I was like, this is heaven. Like, this is wow. awesome. And just started working in different labs. I worked uh, with Dr. Frank Gallagher at Liberty State Park looking at uh, phytoremediation um, and how uh, heavy metals affect photosynthetic capabilities of trees. Um, I worked in the desert southwest in the Mojave and Sonoran deserts looking at uh species affecting fire regimes um and my master's project i worked with dr jennifer crewman and dr myla aronson i'm looking at the relationships of soil microbiology communities so like soil fungi and bacteria and how they were interacting with plant communities and riparian zones uh, that's a great look- that's a, that's a great resume right there <laughs> yeah 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 and white-tailed deer affecting invasive plant species uh, with Dr. Janet Morrison at TCNJ. So kind of like all over, any chance I could get to learn about plants, I just jumped on it. And then when I uh, applied to work at the Sireland Conservancy, it was just an administrative role, an administrative assistant role. And during my interview, I was told like that, you know, I understand that you have a science background, but this is administrative work. There's no science you know, just administrative. And on the outside, I said, okay, sure, I understand. But on the inside, I was like, there has to be science. <laughs> There's always going to be science. Um, you know, you can't save the environment without science. So Exactly. Shortly after I started here, my job started changing, and there was science, and it was good. <laughs> and, and, you know, been really happy, you know, here. I mean, I get to learn so much. There's so much that I just didn't even – it didn't even pass my realm of possibilities that this 
you know, ecosystem types were working together and, you know, because I was so involved with plants and I've learned so much about birds and amphibians and reptiles and um, getting to work with people outside of academia and learning their knowledge and sharing my knowledge with them has just been phenomenal. And I've really, really enjoyed it. That's, wow. You know, that's really impressive. I wish I could say that my path that led me here to Pinelands Nursery was that interesting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, it's really not. A, all right, I'm going to share my story, and it's basically going to be one. Oh, sentence. I want to hear it. All right, it's going to be one sentence. I I kind of know Tom's because Tom grew up in in the nursery. So, when I graduated high school, I had made the decision to not go to college, and then my fa- father presented me with two unique opportunities. And it was you can join the working class or you could join the homeless. So <laughs> I, I chose to join the working class, and I had a friend that was working at Moon Nurseries, which at the time was still located in, in Yardley, Pennsylvania. And I had a friend working there just doing labor work, and he said, hey, I can get you a job if, if, if you want to if, if you wanna work there. And that was – I think the first day I worked there, I cried because I'm like, oh, I should have yeah. went to college. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. But I just had, you know, the funny thing is when you're in school and you take those work aptitude tests of, you know, where they try to tell you what maybe you'd be, what profession you could go towards. Uh, uh-huh. My test when I took it said botanist, and I kind of chuckled at at it because I'm like, yeah, like I'm gonna be a botanist. But That's I just awesome. had to have, I just happened to have an aptitude for it, and it kind of just like pulled me in, and the rest was history. So it was. You know, I was fortunate enough to work at all different types of nurseries to get a very well-rounded. I worked for one of the top three rose growers in the country. I worked for a a very large B&B nursery uh, in in Moon Nurseries. I worked at the Connor Pyle Company, which was an incredibly large uh, container nursery. And then Princeton, which did both, plus grew seedlings and did introductions. And I just got a very – you know, every step of the way got an education – until I landed here and that's I'm still learning here it's been 13 years and I still feel like I've only scratched the surface so well I think that's the sign of knowing more is realizing you don't really know very much at all I know nothing I know absolutely yeah (laughs) I know absolutely I'm not agreeing with you Fran I'm agreeing with with Carolyn that (laughs) that sign of how much you know is knowing how little you know <laughs> yeah, I I know I know just enough about everything to be dangerous, but not <laughs> that's that's about it. But no, it's I love hearing those stories that you know because not everyone knows what their path is, um, and I think we need more people to find that path in this direction. Um, I, I I kind of feel like that gap is missing. So the more people you can get involved. Uh, at a young age, like at the elementary school doing plantings, perhaps that nudges them towards, gets them thinking that maybe this is the direction they wanted to go. And even Tom, you, we, we kind of talked about it in the last episode, that being mm-hmm. in the nursery wasn't necessarily the direction you were planning on taking. No, no, not at all. It was, uh, it was I think I brought it up in the last episode, it was my brother and I just kind of had a relevation when uh, we were both in college. It's like, you know, wherever we want to end up, going back and starting from the nursery is going to be a lot closer to our end goal than, um, than choosing our own path. And, uh, and I think our paths changed too. And it was, became more into the focus of the nursery where I was going for 
uh, education at one point. I was actually looking at, at banking at one point, and Steve wanted to be um, uh, like a fishing game warden type thing. And um, we were able to parlay what our individual interests are and make them relevant to the nursery and kind of pull the nursery in our own directions as, as we came back as well. Well, and one of the things we really didn't talk about in the Pinelands Nursery episode, it was really at a crossroads because knowing that you and Steve at one point didn't want to be involved with the nursery and and your parents getting older, they didn't really know where to take that nursery Yeah, oh yeah. You know, because on a few occasions your dad was like, I'm really hoping that one of the employees wants to – or the employees as a whole wants to buy this out because I don't want it to end. Like I'd like it to keep – Mm-hmm. going so the fact that the two of you stepped in and not just as uh you know a stepping stone it's you, you've kind of made it your own which is which is pretty mm-hmm. awesome i i i like i i've i've liked every direction we've gone in i'm enjoying this phase of of pinelands nursery yeah i think That's it's good. really important to talk <laughs> about you know that it's not always a straight shot you know you can flounder mm-hmm. around and still find a lot of joy and happiness and meaningfulness out of your work I, yeah you know it was nice when we had kelly gill on hearing that she wanted to be an artist and and went back and and changed things mm-hmm. a little bit and it's you know that and it's i just always find it amazing you know and we've had the conversation here like what if the best soccer player in the world never touched a soccer ball like the best player may be someone that's never played like what are you best at and it seems like all the people that we deal with are really meant to be doing what they're doing, and I love that. It's people yeah. that are passionate, and they love it, and they're here for a reason, and I love hearing how they found that. Um, and I hope our listeners do too because I find it fascinating. Yeah. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Just got to make sure everybody gets the opportunity to try. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So speaking so, of our listeners, we we probably should we, – we should probably get to – yeah. Pollinator Week questions. Well, right I'd now. say even before we get into the questions, let's uh, let's let Carolyn say: Are there any events coming up that people can get involved with? I saw something. I know you had some stuff that got postponed or canceled, but I saw that the uh, the Sarlin Spectacular is still going on in a modified fashion. Yep. So that's going on. I think it's September fifth through the thirteenth. You can sign up. And find information about that on our website. It's on our banner at Sourland, S-O-U-R-L-A-N-D dot org. Um, and you can click that banner and it'll take you to the Sourland Spectacular website to find more information about that. Um, we will be putting out a call for people to come out to our foraging force to help us manage some weeds. So if you really like pulling weeds. Especially if you're not allergic to poison ivy like me, and you want to help me deal with some poison ivy, that'd be really great. I am um, insanely allergic to poison ivy. Oh no. I will not be helping you. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I'll take care of it, and then you can come afterwards. All right. That sounds great. So we'll definitely, um, we're definitely going to be looking for volunteers to come out and just help hand pull weeds. Um, because we're trying to really limit the amount of herbicide that goes into the planet. So we're trying to do as much weed control as possible through hand pulling and mowing. So we would love to have some volunteers out there. You can learn some plant ID and some fun information about the local ecology from me or and the other volunteers that are out there. Our stewardship volunteer crew is phenomenal. They're so knowledgeable and really happy to share it. 
So we don't have any dates for that yet, but we will definitely put it out so you can get on to our volunteer list at volunteer at sourland.org or email at info at sourland.org to find out more. Awesome. Get involved, everyone. Be a, be a part of this. Don't just talk about it. Be a part of it. So Absolutely. So we did ask our listeners to be a part of Pollinator Week with us because we didn't want to have it be Pollinator Week and, and not touch on it. Um, so we did ask in our uh, Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast Facebook page for some of our listeners to um, ask pollinator questions. And I think that was Tom's idea. And I was like, ooh, who's going to answer them? <laughs> because I'm not, I'm not really good at that. So um, we did get a couple questions. So we're, we're going to read them off. And then uh, we did a little bit of research. I had wanted to actually like – like I want it like a uh, deal or no deal, like call a friend, like can we call Kelly Gill or Marcus Gray and ask them. But Tom was like, no, let's do it. So uh, Tom is going to be much better at this than me. But Carolyn, please join in. If Please, uh, anything you want to interject, we would love it. So okay. I'm more of a plants person than a pollinator, but I will try. So our first question was – uh, from Cato Callahan and she asked if there was a state pollinator so real quickly I I didn't know of one and I thought that was a great idea and I'm like wow what if there is one I didn't know about it so I did a quick search for state pollinator and nothing came up I did find that New Jersey Fish and Wildlife was actively talking about how important pollinators were and they were just using monarchs as an example and they had even uh, they issued a New Jersey Monarch Butterfly Conservation Guide. So it was nice that a state organization had started moving that direction. But that's kind of as, as as much as I had found. I think, Tom, you had a little bit different success yeah. than I did. But, yeah, I, I already knew that the we had a state bug. I didn't we know We don't that. technically have a state pollinator. But we have a state bug, and that is uh, the European honeybee. Wah, and, wah, um, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we European honeybees have their their benefits. They also have their detriments. Um, that was really, and when when you said I that, Tom, thinking, that was really yeah. disappointing to me that that was the state bug. I yeah, I was I was just kind of bummed. And I started to get interested, knowing that we have listeners from potentially all over the world, but definitely all over the country. I said, oh, I shouldn't just say New Jersey state insect. I should see what some of the other state insects are. So I started looking up, and I found that 17 states actually have the European honeybee as their state. I shouldn't even say insect. All, almost all of them said it was their state bug, which I don't know if that's the right way to put it, too. <laughs> but, um, and those states were Arkansas. Oh, wait, am I reading the right list? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Arkansas, Georgia, Kansas, Louisiana, Maine, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, New Jersey, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, Vermont, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. That's all. They all had the honeybee as their state bug. That was like a good um, cross section of the country. That's yeah. not even just like the northeast or the southwest. It was it was all the way across the country there. Yeah. Now some of the states had multiple bugs. Some of them had a state bug and a state butterfly. Like New Jersey now does, as of I think two or three years ago, we um, we now have the the black swallowtail as our state butterfly. And uh, there's actually twelve states that had a swallowtail in some fashion, either Eastern swallowtail or the black swallowtail or the spice bush swallowtail as their state butterfly. Um, and then there was another uh, five states that had the ladybug. And I like the ones, the states that pick something a little bit different. 
So my, my favorites were South Carolina had a athlete named Carolina Mantis, which is one of our native mantises. Right. Uh, there's another state that had a, the European mantis. So I, okay. I'm not going to put them on blast right now, but, <laughs> but there was a state that had a non-native insect. Uh-huh. Um, Pennsylvania had the Pennsylvania firefly. And then Rhode okay. Island had the endangered American burying beetle, which is a beetle that feeds on, um, on like death and decay, decaying meat, basically. So wow. I don't know how why they chose that one, but that was their, their state insect, according to Wikipedia. I was oblivious to all of this. I didn't know any of this existed. So, Carolyn, did you know? Did you, did you know? Well, I know that we have, like, state tree, like the red oak and red oak. the state flowering tree mm-hmm. is the flowering dogwood. And so, the state like, bird. I knew, like, I knew those. Yeah, yeah, I knew those, but as far as insects, I definitely did not know, but I'm kind of flabbergasted that it's not a thing. If we can have yeah. all these other ones, why not? Can we start yeah. a like a uh, something to, to change the, the, the state the state bug out of honeybee? Like what you're, can we You're gonna take take on big honey then, friend. Oh, <laughs> oh that's you know what? You know what? It could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the honeybees. Yeah. At least we yeah. have one. We do. There were two one. states that didn't have a state state insect. But um, what what were they? Do you remember? Oh, I don't. All right. I think Alaska might have been one of them. Hawaii did have one, but I don't remember what it was. Um, so we're doing better than at least two states. <laughs> All right, so next question, Tom. I'm completely relying on you for the next question. Do you want to? Do you want to read it, or do you want me to read the question? Uh, you can read it. All right. So, so our next question was submitted by Brenda Weiss, and it is: since beetles and wasps are also pollinators, are there any specific obligate relationships between a species of beetle or wasp and a plant that are really interesting? I think I remember reading uh, about a wasp and a species of orchid one time. So this, I didn't, I knew that there was going to be something. I didn't know of anything off the top of my head outside of one. And that was, and it's not really the only thing that'll pollinate this plant, but with our, our seed, uh, field of milkweed that we use for seeds, the common milkweed is just loaded with milkweed beetles. So I figured it's called a milkweed beetle. It probably has to be reliant on milkweed in some fashion. And I guess the obvious one is the, the monarch butterfly is a specialist on, um, uh, at least the larvae is a specialist on milkweed. Yeah. But the milkweed beetles, uh, they're bright red. They're, they're, if you have milkweed, you probably have milkweed beetles on them right now. Um, they're bright red. Right now is their mating season. You can get some interesting pictures of them doing their thing, like my brother does all the time. Um, and he puts it up on our, our Pilot Nursery Instagram account. Yes. But uh, they'll lay their eggs on the milkweed kind of near the base of the stem. Uh, when the eggs hatch, they'll burrow down and feed on the roots in the soil. Uh, then they'll hatch and come up, and they'll actually um, – uh, and this actually ties into another part, but the the milkweed's pollen forms like a really sticky ball, and uh, I'm forgetting the name of the, what the pollen ball is, but it'll get stuck to that milkweed beetle, and then as they go to plant to plant, they'll actually pollinate other plants um, as they feed on the ne- nectar, and they'll feed on the leaves as well. But the milkweed beetle was one that I kind of knew about already that had to be a specialist on milkweed. Uh, but I started looking around a little bit more, um, the beetles in general as pollinators tend to like bigger flowers uh, milkweed has a bigger flower big cluster flower 
but they like magnolia flowers. They like tulip poplar, pawpaw flowers, water lilies, kind of those big like, cusp flowers because they're clumsy and they need a big place to land. Um, some of the cluster flowers they like are goldenrods, spireas, those kind of things. Okay. Uh, getting to wasps. Now, wasps, I, I found there was one that was a super, super popular specialist. And uh, not necessarily native, but uh, there's a, a variety of fig wasps. For every variety of figs, there's a certain wasp that will actually pollinate it. Really? The only thing that will pollinate figs. And um, it's basically a female wasp will go into the male fig uh, flower, I guess, lay its eggs. And then when the eggs hatch, the males will kind of burrow through and dig their way out. Um, and they die. And then the females will uh, fly out through the holes the males burrow through, find another fig flower, go in, and then that's how they pollinate it. Um, but without those wasps, you don't get figs. Only thing that pollinates figs. Wow. So interesting. I thought that was really interesting. I don't, I, they must be, well, my dad has figs and he gets fruit on them, so he must have fig wasps, fig wasps yeah. in, in his backyard. Um, and then, and scientists have actually said with those that it's been like approximately a 60 million year coevolution between figs and these wasps. Wow. As the figs have evolved, the wasps have evolved with them as the only <laughs> thing that pollinates figs. So, and then um, in regards to the orchid part of that question, uh, I didn't find a specific native orchid that this happened to, but orchids as a whole uh, are really reliant on wasps pollinate them. Not all orchids, but a lot of, like over 100 species of orchids need wasps to pollinate them. And um, it's through, they're actually pollinated through sexual deception. And um, the orchids will put out a, a smell that smells like the pheromones of a female wasp, and they'll produce um, uh, flower parts that look like a female wasp. And then the male wasp will be coming along and want to do his thing, and he'll smell and see the female wasp that's actually the orchid flower and uh and he'll go along and get it done and then he'll say oh you know what i smell another female wasp over here and he'll go to another orchid and another orchid and that's how a lot of these orchids are actually pollinated and um there's other orchids that'll that'll produce uh will actually produce nectar there's other ones that produce deceptive nectar and they'll look like they're going to be have food and like just trap a bee or, or whatever's going to pollinate it in there. Um, so half the only way out is to collect its pollen. But uh, over 100 species of orchids require uh, wasps to pollinate them through sexual deception, which is just incredibly fascinating, I guess. It's not what I was expecting when I started looking this up. Wow. You, yeah. you know what? I'm glad I let you answer that question because I would have had yeah. nothing. <laughs> I, don't, yeah, I don't know anything really about beetle pollinators, but my two favorite beetles in New Jersey are the dog green leaf beetle. I don't know if anybody's seen mm -hmm. that. And the um, golden tortoise beetle, which I had in my garden last year. And mm -hmm. both of them just absolutely stunning little bugs. So, uh I I, as far as, I am writing them down so I can look them yeah, up. Check them out. Golden tortoise beetle. When I saw it, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, they're incredible. Absolutely incredible. Awesome. I and have, yeah, there's some beetles that are, are pollinators. There's other beetles that are, well, the Rhode Island State beetle is, feeds on rotten meat. and um, But some of them are predatory. Some of them are, are pollinators. It's not uh, right. Same thing with flies. Some flies are predatory. Some wasps are predatory. Some of them pollinators. Not 
every wasp is going to sting you and every wasp is going to uh, try and carry a caterpillar away and, and eat other insects. Some of them are feeding off of nectar and, and pollinators. You know, you know, the only thing I could think of going into that question, it had nothing to do with either wasps or or uh, beetles, uh, was when we had Sam Drogi on and he was talking about specialist native bees and the, yeah, the, yeah. the willow, the, the salix uh, mm-hmm. bee. And I was thinking about like how narrowed down that is and there has to be so much more other than that. And I'm glad I'm glad I let you answer that one. Because that was yeah. that was great information. I'm glad I found something because I was I was ready to kick that one to Sam or Kelly or, <laughs> or Mark. <laughs> I didn't find anything. But, so and we and have, I hope that answers I hope that answers uh, Brenda's the question well enough. So. I, I I think it I, I I can't talk for Brenda, but I would think that it would. Um, so last question was from Skip Burns. And if you had to pick just a handful of plants to start with for anyone to put in their yard to support pollinators, what would they be? Uh, so Tom and I kind of discussed this one ahead of time, and we were each going to pick five plants. So we came up with a uh, top ten. So, Carolyn, you're more than welcome to throw in whatever you want. So um, okay. we'll give you a turn as well. I don't want to put you on the spot, so we'll let you go last while while we go if you want to <laughs> think of a few. Um, so for me, uh, the first – first plant i thought of was uh monarda punctata uh because it's a pollinator magnet we realized as soon as we started uh producing plants to collect seed that was the first block of plants that we realized as you were walking up to it you could hear it humming (laughs) it was so active with pollinators while it was blooming and that was the first thing that that stood out and it's it's a very unique flower um and a, a very cool plant and I, I thought that was a great choice um living in new jersey you can't not mention blueberry uh it's a new jersey staple um and it's loved by the native bumblebee and also the native solitary bees uh and birds love them too y- you know and i had to laugh because i mentioned on other podcasts my fiance is from poland and there's something about the relationship with uh people from poland and blueberries they love blueberries and black currants so the, the birds are having a field day with the blueberries this year. My fiance is not happy. Also, the state fruit. I didn't know that. Is it really? Yeah, yeah, I saw that early too. I think I knew that, but I didn't know it was that. good to get the reminder. Well, yeah. I'm glad I mentioned it then. <laughs> yeah. um, this one's not native to New Jersey, but we do have listeners all over, so I thought I'd mention Amsonia hubrechtii. Uh, I'm trying to remember the common name, Blue Star, I think it is. Uh, but it's loved by butterflies, skippers, moths, and bees. I love it for the foliage. Even though it has a very unique flower, it has very fern-like soft foliage that kind of waves in the wind, and it turns like a yellowish-orange in the fall, and it's got a great – it just adds a great texture to any garden, and it, by added bonus, it does bloom. Um, cardinal flower for hummingbirds, I, I – I, I love cardinal flower. I, I don't think I could have a list without putting that one on there. And uh, when, when you think of helping just ecosystems, um, you have to mention milkweed for, for monarchs. So mm-hmm. those are my top five. Tom, how about you? So I went super, I don't want to say basic, but these if I was going to start a garden, these would be the five things I'd – I'd find easiest, well, I shouldn't say if I was going to start a garden. When I started my garden, these were like the five things I really wanted to put in there because they're easy to grow. They're, they're 
conventionally beautiful. Um, and I figured if these are the thing, if I was going to try and convince someone else to start a garden, I'd say to pick off of these five things, maybe six or seven, if I really wanted to add some. But the first one I had was false sunflower, which is Heliopsis helianthoides. Um, it gets a little big and it can spread a little bit, but it's, uh, it's easy to grow and it gets a lot of generous. The big yellow flowers get a lot of generous and get a lot of, I guess, um, get a lot of insect pests, a lot of aphids, but you get a lot of predatory insects like uh, your lacewing larvae and your, your ladybugs. So you get a lot of variety just from that plant. You know, it, um, it, does but get, it's, it, it does get tall, but if you're managing it in a garden setting, mm, like when it gets up two feet, cut it back to a foot. Like you can you can keep yeah, it manageable because yeah. it is one that will tend to flop a little bit if it if it gets a little stretched. But that's, you can definitely keep that one managed in a garden setting. The next one I put was Monarda fistulosa or uh, wild bergamot. Uh, kind of the same reasons. It's really easy to go. It will spread some. smells really nice. Uh, you do have to worry about downy mildew if it gets a little bit too wet. But uh, you get some really interesting pollinators. You still get some of the generous, generalist pollinators, but you get some other stuff that's uh, a little bit more rare, I guess is the right way to say it. And it's a really beautiful flower. You're not going to have to worry about something messy that has little tiny flowers on it. It gets a, a bigger fireworky type flower. So uh, it's something you can suggest to a friend. Hey, you want some pollinators in your garden? Try, try this. So the next one I had was uh, Pensamin digitalis, which is possible beard tongue, uh, mostly because it's the same thing. It kind of plays nice. It doesn't get too big. Um, it flowers earlier in the season, so it's one of the first food sources for, for pollinators. And, uh, and we love taking pictures of all the just the stingers sticking out of the end of the flowers when they're feeding on them because the bees really just really get in there. <laughs> to get the nectar out and get the pollen out. I, so I, they make some really cool flowers when you just have the fuzzy little bumblebee butt hanging out the end. I like bee so, butts and I cannot lie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now this fourth one was a little bit of a toss-up to me because I, I really like Liatris a lot, uh, Liatris piccata in particular, the, the I, blazing star. I do too. Um, I do too. But I, the other one I put was just, I think, better for pollinators overall. Uh, and that's uh, your Joe Pie weeds, um, and they can get really big. But just the flower head and that cluster of flowers being so big and so great, it's just like a helicopter pad for for butterflies to land on and feed, and they'll stay there for for a long, long time. Um, and I think the height with that big flower kind of complements each other because it'll get big, it'll kind of head droop over just slightly, and um, you can get some really cool pictures just off that that uh, that flower. I found when I go to like plant sales, you have your Joe Pye fans and your Joe Pye haters, and the Joe Pye fans will get like every single plant they can because they love them so much. Yeah. And then others are like, oh, this thing can get up like eight feet. I don't, I don't want any close <laughs> to that. So it's um, a little more controversial, but I know it's really beneficial. And that's one of the things monarchs really like as they're coming through uh, later in the summer, uh, just because it's it provides a lot of nectar and it's that big surface from the land on. And, uh, and the last one I picked was more, it's a really conventional, uh, landscape plant. Um, it's native, but it's already used quite a bit. And that's the Eastern red bud. Uh, and that's primarily cause it's one of the earlier food sources for, for a lot of these pollinators. It's, um, it's one of those plants you can, if someone, your neighbor says, Hey, I really, I know you like, like, uh, native flowers and, you're doing a lot of stuff for pollinators. I want to try some too. Uh, what's something I can do? 
it's something you can suggest that there's things that are more beneficial, but it's an easy stepping stone to get them there. You don't want to go and say, oh, I, you need to plant some rare willow so that these specialist willow bees have, have food or plant. Um, I'm trying to think of something that's a little uh, uglier, I guess is the, the wrong word to say, but um, it's not you something that is... uglier? Come on. I know. Uglier is not the right word. <laughs> but uh, why I chose redbud was because it's something that you can really... People already are using it. And um, as long as you're using something that's that's Munich free and, and uh, hopefully is of local ecotype, you're going to have a lot of success with pollinators using something that's going to be conventionally beautiful. You're not going to have someone driving by and yelling out the window to, to get rid of all those weeds in your yard because it's something they're going to see at other houses down the street. Exactly. So. Exactly. All right, yeah. Carolyn, would you like to would you like to add? Well, I didn't realize we could do trees. You can. So, yes. Okay. Well, if we do trees and you have the space. You should do a tulip poplar or tulip tree. Uh, They have beautiful flowers. You won't be able to see them, but they're really (laughs) good for hummingbirds and other early migrants coming back because they're definitely one of the first uh, to bloom. And then a lot of the plants that I was thinking of are ones that you already mentioned, like jokai weed and blazing star. Um, but I also wanted to add grasses are really important. So you can do grass. Yeah. Sedge, oh, yeah. So like little blue stems, switchgrass, we want something a little bit bigger and clumpy. Uh, any of the sedges are also really great for pollinators because we want to support that entire life cycle. You need structure for them to pupate on. So throwing in some grasses in there would be really great just for your own visual enjoyment of the different textures and the qualities that they have. And they, you know, in the fall, they have a really nice quality too in the winter um, where they turn like, especially switchgrass towards that nice bronze color. So it's a great choice. Um, I would also throw in their New England Aster or New York Ironweed, um, both beautiful, you know, bluish purple colors um, and golden rods too. I know people are not a generally a huge fan of goldenrods because they can become uh, really pushy and spread but mm-hmm. they're great pollinators uh, great for pollinators and they're blooming late on in the season so you know get something to bloom early on in the middle of the summer and then at the end of the summer and you can enjoy it all season long there's a lot of great mm-hmm. choices with with native golden rods there's there's plenty to choose from that will fit yeah. any setting yeah. that you're looking for so you know people you know goldenrod just has such a bad snig- stigmatism to it because people associate yeah. it with i think hay fever but please please it's not the case use them they're, they're right. great pollinators yeah. well i yeah, think it's... we talked about it that they're have those beautiful colors because they want to bring plants to them the ones that are causing all your pollen woes are green and inconspicuous because why mm-hmm. would the plant put that energy you know into making this beautiful flower if it's just going to throw its pollen everywhere exactly exactly so this is this is the the, the time of the show where we ask the one final question and if you've oh, listened no. you know what it is As, are you prepared are you ready uh, I will try. All right. What is your favorite native plant? Ooh. Um, I know it's, it's hard. Probably. I... <laughs> it's probably the plant that I'm looking at at that moment. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it really depends. In the spring, I love bloodroot. 
you know, I get so excited when I see those little lampposts come up, but like Enchanter's Nightshade with those little fairy looking uh, flowers with little shoes on and I don't know, trees, all those white oaks, chestnut oaks, American sycamore. I, I don't think I really pick one. It's just going to be whatever I'm seeing at that moment is probably my favorite. I, I'm starting to appreciate <laughs> oaks and oaks more, just more than oh. just uh, caterpillar larvae and things, just as we're experiencing issues in New Jersey with bacterial leaf scorch and we're starting to see a decline oh, no. in oaks, yeah. um, you, you start to appreciate their valor more and more. So it's I, I've definitely have started singing their praises. That's one that, you know, people just don't think of an oak in that way, but it's it's extremely important. Well, when you come across like a mature white oak with that bark just peeling just like ever so slightly and the branches are so big and magnificent, magnificent it's just, I don't know. There's I nothing like it. Of it. There's nothing like it. There really isn't. All right. Final thoughts. Tom, would, would, would you like to go first? Would you want to let Carolyn yeah, go, go first? first? You want to go first? Okay. We'll, we'll let her, let's let our guests go first. Okay. Was, all right. Carolyn, we, we always give everyone – yeah, I, I like going last anyway. So, so, um, so we give everyone a final thought just based on our conversations and everything that we've talked about. Um, is there anything that you want to add about anything at all? You can go in any direction you want. I think I would just really like to drive home the message that, you know, the choices that you make affect everything around you. So be a good land steward choose native plants get involved in your community um and really embrace the fact that you're part of this ecosystem very nice tom you want to go or you want me to go i can go all right so the first one is if you haven't and you're capable of doing this just visit the sourlands um go for a bike ride it doesn't have to be through that sourland spectacular i think you have some trail maps for other times of year but even if you're just going on your own just visit it it's such a unique uh area of new jersey and really of just the mid-atlantic you don't find that kind of um that kind of habitat many other places and i know you'll enjoy it and if you need other reasons to go go there stop at brick Pine tavern or or troon brewing or with the sourland mountain spirits or mm-hmm. there's if you really want to want to go, you can spend your time at Hillbilly Hall. Yeah. We have a lot <laughs> but, of good history of drinking here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, you could make a you could make a day of it. You could make an afternoon of it, and I think everyone would really enjoy it. Uh, I'm going to also add on: join our Facebook group. Like we started with these these questions, we're going to try and do that some more often, and and every once in a while when we have guests, we're going to ask for some listener feedback before we have a guest. Hey, what are you guys interested in hearing this person talk about? And uh, that way we can throw questions at our, our guests that are uh, pertinent to what you actually want to listen to. So the group is, uh, the we want to get that engagement up. So. Yeah. The group has been quiet, but we've been quiet in it also. So we need to do a better job as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I love that, that everyone submitted questions and, if you have mm-hmm. questions for Carolyn, she is a member of the group as well, as long as as well as other people from the Sourland Conservancy, other employees. So please, if you have Absolutely. questions, share them. I'm, I'm sure you'd be happy to answer them. Um, yeah. So, all right. My final thought is for, for anyone that wants to get involved, get involved. And it doesn't have to be, 
your brainchild, especially when you're you're trying to think of how to get involved. It doesn't have to be insular. Um, look around at what other people are doing and how other organizations are handling it. Be a part of multiple organizations. Try a few. Find out which one best suits you. But just the, the, the key aspect is to be active, um, and it just starts with one small step, and, and take that first step and see where it leads you, and just you may find yourself changing your career. Who, who knows? But there, we, we're trying to give everyone a very well-rounded idea of, of how you can be involved in what great work organizations are doing, and I think Sarah Lynn's Conservancy is, is a great um, example of of great work especially in such a unique environment and what they're doing to help and educate and protect and it's it's just it's great to see especially here in our backyard in new jersey that that we can go visit it it may not be something that if you're local you can visit but hopefully if you're this way make it a destination or make some of these other places a destination um especially during COVID 19 my fiance and i basically mm-hmm. been doing nothing but visiting parks <laughs> like as soon as they were open again we're just uh, checking them off our list and and doing a lot of hiking and exploring and it's 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 a real it's a real uh, game changer when when you start making it a bigger part of your everyday. So let it mm. let it become part of your everyday. That's that's it. Awesome. That's my final thought. Well Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Awesome. So we did we did well, vow that we were going to switch this up a little bit. So Tom and I are switching roles. <laughs> yeah. To see if he is – if we can get through this. If it's me that just stumbles through it or, or if it's yeah. that hard. So, but uh, but anyway, I guess that, that really just wraps it up. So thank you guys again for joining us. We really hope you enjoy, enjoyed listening to the – or listening about oh, – Fran, I oh. already screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, we'll see how I do on my half because now I'm, yeah. I'm completely but now, something. Yeah, now I'm, now I'm running low on sleep and – I got excuses now. I will. Well, I will. We hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed listening about the Sourland Conservancy. Please follow them at www.sourland.org on Twitter, uh, and that's at Sourland's Org. Facebook is at Sourland Conservancy, and Instagram is at Sourland underscore Conservancy. Thank you for everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pondos Nursery. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm totally out of my element too. I just looked at him like, what, what am I saying? <laughs> you you can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out at Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or you can just ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Uh, I'd like to give a big thank you to Stephen Mahar for contributing our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, Facebook is backslash Pinelands Nursery NJ. Instagram is at Pinelands Nursery. Uh, on YouTube is also at Pinelands Nursery. And let's keep this conversation going. Join that Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. And um, we're interested in seeing your pictures of your yard, what pollinators you have joining you in your garden, and uh, and just what questions you have. Maybe other people in the group are going through the same thing, or, or maybe it's something we're going to discuss on the podcast. And, uh, and while you're at it, Go ahead and leave us a, a five-star review on, on uh, iTunes reviews and, and tell us what you liked about listening. Tell us more about uh, with us. With that? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We're a little rusty. So don't, yes. don't, don't mention that. Yeah. <laughs> but with that, I'm, thank you again, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran Carolyn. Thank you so much. 
uh, for being oh, a part thank of this. Oh, uh, anytime. This is this has been wonderful. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. We will see you all next time. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.